everybody. Welcome to another episode of Stock Talk. This is a little uh, podcast slash video that I like to uh, throw together once a week where I like to talk about all things investing. Uh, take a look at what's going on in the markets, my observations about what's going on in the market, what's going on uh, in terms of how I'm making my own investment decisions, and sharing that knowledge with you and those observations with you with the hope and intention that you can maybe take some of it uh, away away from here and be able to apply it to your own personal investing uh, circumstances. Uh, normally, as I said, this is like a video or it comes in video and podcast form, but this week we're just I'm just doing it in, in podcast form. So just me talking, no uh, looking at me uh, this week. My name is Amon Reina and I'm an investment coach and founder of Sage Investors. And as an investment coach, what I do is I help people who want to become more financially independent, but they just feel intimidated and confused and frustrated by the whole investing concept. They either don't know where to start if they're just learning to invest or they've been investing for a while and just aren't seeming to be making any traction with their portfolios. So what I do as an investment coach is I teach people. I engage with them on how to make more educated and ultimately more successful uh, investment decisions so that they can achieve a certain level of financial freedom in their lives and achieve it with confidence. So this is episode 88, the double eight. And guess what? It's investment decision day. Uh, one of the things I, I, I take a lot of pride in doing uh, being an investment coach and in teaching people how to invest is <clears throat> modeling the behavior because I really believe it's important that it's one thing for me to teach people how to you know read an income statement or a financial statement or analyze ratios or figure out where interest rates are what a yield curve is all about it's one thing to do all that kind of stuff but it's another to actually practice it and to actually model it and demonstrate it uh, demonstrate it for people that I work with to show that this is stuff that really can help them make better investment decisions. So I, I, I take a lot of pride in trying to be transparent, and that's what I want to be with my, with my practice, and transparent in showing how people, how I make my own investment decisions, to show that, you know, what I'm just saying is just about random stuff that I'm just putting out there. It's stuff that I'm applying. The stuff that I'm teaching is the stuff that I'm applying. So for regular uh, listeners and viewers, I guess, of Stock Talk, uh, you'll know that uh, every few weeks, or once a month at least, uh, I dedicate one episode and I dedicate one blog post on my website, sageinvestors.ca, to uh, sharing with uh, everybody my investment decisions and more importantly, the thought process that I've gone through to make those decisions. And uh, so that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about my latest batch of decisions that I had to make in the previous month and kind of walk you through what I was thinking when I was making these decisions and ultimately what led me to make these decisions. So <clears throat> July was a pretty uh, pretty busy month. I made a lot of kind of, I decided to make uh, act on a lot of decisions and, uh, and, and pull the trigger on a few things. And it comes down to, I'm gonna talk about, kind of break it down into a couple of different areas. One is um, decisions that I had to make with respect to currencies. Um, and then decisions that, um, that kind of played into my decisions in currencies. And then I'm also going to talk about a couple of new stocks that I, I decided to, to buy uh, for my portfolios. And actually they're for, yeah, for my, for my portfolios. Uh, so I'm going to talk about first the first part, which is the currency issue. So what we've seen in the last while is, and it really, this, when I'm talking about this, this is really more applicable to, to my friends and colleagues up here in Canada, uh, who are kind of dealing with this more face-on. And if you're in the U.S., 
this probably isn't as big a deal because everything's in U.S. dollars and you don't have to deal with that currency risk uh, as you're investing at home. Um, <clears throat> so one of the challenges for us as Canadians uh, investing here, if we want to invest in U.S. companies and U.S. stocks, is we have to. Uh, there's a little thing called the currency uh, conversion, which can kind of make things make our portfolios look really great and there are times when it can make our portfolios look really lousy and right now we're in that kind of zone right now with the US Canadian dollar relationship where our if you own um, US dollar based assets if you own US stocks right now they are the value of those stocks is depreciating because the value of the US dollar is depreciating and so you can be making really great investment decisions and buying the right stocks and the right ETFs, but because the U.S. dollar has been has been weakening quite you know meaningfully over this past year, it's kind of eroding the value of our portfolios. So right now I'm facing that decision because I hold quite a bit of U.S. stocks in my portfolios, and so I've you know uh, <clears throat> I've I've enjoyed the benefit of owning them um, when the U.S. dollar was very was very strong. Um, because it gave me extra returns beyond the returns I was generating with the stock itself. But now I'm in a situation where the dollar is the U.S. dollar is depreciating. It's taking a chunk a little bit out of my return and kind of uh, holding my returns a little bit back. So one decision I've been kind of facing, and we always face, and I get this question all the time, is how do you manage this currency risk? Like what? Like should you even bother managing it? And so I, I've told people that I work with, and the people I've told here, and I've shared this well, I think uh, on the on the on the show here is that there's basically two schools of thought with respect to currency risk. It's either if you're investing for a long period of time, you know, you're going to hold things for like multi, multi years, 10, 20 years type thing. The effects of currency risk really are going to get washed out. It's a bit of a wash. You know, currencies go up, currencies go down. At the end of the day, it probably cancel each other out. So it's really, you shouldn't really factor that in. So that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is if you're a little bit more neurotic about the whole thing, um, that you should probably hedge some of your portfolio, protect your portfolio app, Buy some insurance uh, on your portfolio to protect you from these these uh, the volatility in terms of currency currency moves. And <clears throat> there's lots of ways you can do it. Um, f- for me, I've been trying to figure out a way to do it. And uh, I used to be able to do it. There used to be some ETFs out there that you could buy that would be like an inverse um, that would allow you to hedge off or insure part of your U.S. dollar exposure or U.S. asset exposure, but those zones don't exist anymore. So I've been kind of trying to figure out a way to kind of in a backdoor, not perfect scientific 100% method of of kind of hedging some of this and getting some insurance. And for me, the one of the best ways right now that I see, and if there's better ways, I'd love to hear about it, is by owning some commodities. And the only reason why I say that is because one of the things that there's a, a bit of an inverse relationship between how the U.S. dollar and commodity prices perform. So if the U.S. dollar is strengthening, that tends to put pressure, uh, uh, a downward pressure on commodity prices. When I'm talking commodities, I'm talking gold, oil. You know, uh, those are kind of the big plays. Uh, copper, in that sense, uh, the commodity, the materials kind of side of it. Conversely, if the U.S. dollar falls in value, that tends to put an upward pressure on commodity prices. So my logic being is, if I bought some, uh, if the U.S. dollar is going to continue to weaken. Um, maybe a reasonable substitute to kind of protect some of my uh, U.S. dollar, you know, protect my U.S. dollar uh, assets, U.S. dollar stocks, is to buy me buy some gold. 
I thought, okay, maybe I'll do that. It's kind of an indirect backdoor kind of thing. So I bought, I've, what I, one of the decisions I made um, was to buy some um, gold. And I did that through an ETF, um, which is called a uh, ticker symbol CGL. And it invests basically in gold bullion. And, uh, and the, the, the premise being, if the US dollar continues to fall, that the value of the CGL will go up. The value of the gold ETF will go up. And what I did is I basically looked at my total dollar value of my uh, U.S. Uh, stocks, and I just basically said, you know what, half, I'm going to buy half the position, half that value, and put it in, in, in this gold ETF and sort of hedge half my position. The reason being is that the U.S. dollar keeps going down. At least I might have some indirect protection, but I don't have no idea where currencies go. I have no clue where the U.S. dollar is going to keep going down, or is going to, it could just go back. It could easily go back up. So if it goes back up, then I enjoy the benefit by not being fully hedged on it. I enjoy the benefit of the, the my U.S. stocks are going to increase even more in value, and I'll, I'll enjoy that benefit. So my personal thing. This is my personal thing. I don't say anybody should do like exactly what I'm doing. As I'm trying to like hedge maybe half half my U.S. stocks, the value of my U.S. stocks, hedge half of it and uh, kind of get some protection um, on the downside of the US dollar. So that's one of the key decisions I made this month is I added more position, I added more, I bought more shares in the, uh, in the gold ETF CGL, ticker symbol CGL. The second, on the flip side, the benefit uh, living up here of having a weaker US dollar is a stronger Canadian dollar. So which means our, if I wanted to go out and buy US stocks, I can buy more, I can get more value out of it, I can get more, uh, I can buy more shares with less money, uh, with less Canadian dollar uh, money, because the Canadian dollar is, is strong. So the fact of the matter is the dollar was at as low as 68 cents per US dollar you know, earlier in the year. It's now gone up to almost 79 cents. So it's a very material increase in the value of the Canadian dollar. So one of the things I, I thought I made as a decision was that I looked at some of my current existing U.S. stocks and I said, you know what, I think I'm going to buy some more stock. I'm just going to add more to my current positions because the fact of the matter is the, the prices for those U.S. stocks right now are cheaper for me uh, in Canadian dollar uh, terms. So ultimately, I made a decision to buy a whole bunch, uh, add, buy more shares in a whole bunch of different stocks and ETFs that I own. So what I did is I bought, um, I added to my position in the... Uh, in the iShares uh, Aerospace and Defense uh, ETF, which is ticker symbol XAR, I bought some more stock there. Um, I bought some more shares in my in the iShares uh, US Financials, the ticker symbol XLF. Um, I bought some more stock in CalMain Foods, um, ticker symbol CAL CALM C A L M, and more shares in Tyson Foods, uh, ticker symbol TSN. And also, I bought, ended up buying more shares in Williams Sonoma, ticker symbol WSM. And I noticed today it had a nice little pop today, had some good earnings uh, today. So that was good. That was a good, that was, seems like it was a good move. And then finally, I bought some more shares in, my, uh, in the ticker symbol uh, CVS, which is uh, CVS Pharmacies. Basically, all these stocks actually have gone up um, in the last while. But with the fact of the U.S. dollar being weaker, I could actually go in and buy these stocks at almost the same price that when I bought them originally. So I could get a little bit better bang for the buck um, by buying these stocks. And in a way, it allowed me to, even though the stocks have appreciated, uh, in terms of my cost base, they actually fell a little bit. So the, my cost base for a lot of the, for most of these ETFs and stocks that I bought have actually gone down. So that's a good thing. So ultimately, I believe I buy these. I bought these things because I believe in the long term the value of these shares are going to go up. So I, 
I should hopefully enjoy a little bit of an extra gain on these things whenever they, uh, you know, realize, hopefully they will realize their, their, their true value. So that was another move that I made. Um, and as I said, a whole bunch of moves. And, and again, the premise by buying more shares here is fundamentally, I think the, the stories behind these stocks and behind these ETFs are, nothing's changed except the price. And fundamentally, there's nothing changed in the business or in the basket of companies around them. So I thought with a stronger Canadian dollar, buy some more shares, increase my, lower my actual, my cost base and set myself up for potentially greater gains down the road. Hopefully all things cross, right? No guarantees in investing. Um, so that was my other core decision that I made. Um, I made it last month. Now the final two decisions that I made were additions to my portfolio. I, I've it's been a while since I've actually added new stock, um, bought new stock or opened new positions in stocks. And so in um, July I, I I made a couple of moves. And again, it was part of it that motivated me to to make these moves was the stronger U.S. dollar, giving me a little greater bang for the buck, and allowing me to buy more shares at a cheaper price. Um, and part of it also was a combination that these stocks also fell in value have fallen in value in the last while. And to me, after doing the research and the homework, I thought there were good entry points to come into it. So I made decisions to buy that. So what I'm gonna do here is walk you through how I went through making these decisions to buy these two stocks. Um, as I said, one of the things I, I, I take great pride in is, is practicing what I teach. So every stock that I do evaluate, that I do look at, that I potentially look at as a, as a potential purchase or even a sell, a sale, a sell, a sale of, what I own, I, I believe it's important that you ask these, you have to ask some really important questions, some key questions that'll help you frame your decision more effectively. And this is what I teach. I teach people how to ask these questions and I call them the eight questions. And so what I'm gonna share with you is just essentially how I answer these questions when I bought these stocks. So I'm probably, I'm probably, probably going, Amin, what the hell did you buy? Um, so I'm gonna share with you what I bought. I bought, I bought shares in um, Cheesecake Factory ticker symbol cake, and I bought shares in Costco, ticker symbol cost. So I'm gonna walk you through my thought process when I went through evaluating these companies and ultimately coming up with a decision like, hey, I think I wanna buy some stock in these companies right now. So first what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk about Cheesecake Factory. So <clears throat> first question I always ask when I'm looking at a company in a business is what do they do? What do they sell? What, are, what goods or services do they sell? What's their value proposition? What is distinguishing this company out there? There's 10,000, thousands upon thousands of companies. What is unique about this company? What is their value proposition? So Cheesecake Factory, um, for people who don't know, uh, I think a lot of people do know what Cheesecake Factory, it's a restaurant, it's a restaurant chain. They're kind of in that fast casual, um, casual, yeah, fast casual kind of, uh, or casual dining kind of main, very family friendly, very, uh, it's extremely popular. Um, so what do they sell? Well, to me, when I look at Cheesecake Factory, they sell indulgence, they sell decadence. And if you've been to a Cheesecake Factory, you would think, okay, they sell cheesecake, but they don't just sell your standard, you know, plain cheesecake with a cherry topping on, you know, cherry, what a glazed topping on top. They sell like 20, 30 different kinds of cheesecake. And it's not just little more dorky little pieces of cheesecake. It's like these mountains of, of dessert. And they sell all these other kinds of dessert, like carrot cakes and all these kinds of decadence desserts. 
And then it's just not that. They sell also, um, if you look at their menu, they sell all kinds of, you know, typical fast food, clubby kind of food, kind of clubhouse kind of food. But it's very decadent. It's very like the portions are just ginormous. And, uh, and that's their brand. That's their, that's their identity. When people think about Cheesecake Factory, they think of this over-the-top decadent food. But the cool thing with them is they sell this stuff at a pretty reasonable price point. That seems very affordable to, to a lot of people. Um, you know, if you look at their, their, their menu item, they have like, their menu item is like an encyclopedia. It takes like, you need a half hour to go through their menu. They have, like the last count, they have on average about 200 different menu items in, in their menu. So that's when I think of Cheesecake Factory, when I know about Cheesecake Factory, when I've been to a Cheesecake Factory, it's that decadence element. They sell decadence, they sell that, that indulgence. You know, they, it just people just wanna have an escape and a, just immerse themselves in some crazy food. Cheesecake Factory is, is, is sort of a go-to place. So that's where they are. Second question I always ask myself is who are, their, who are their competitors? Who do they compete with? Well, as I said, they're kind of in the casual dining, fast casual dining area. Typical people that I thought, and I try to figure out who would be their competition. And a lot of times it would be places like, you know, your Lone Star uh, Steakhouse, your Panera Breads, Buffalo Wild Wings, Denny's, because of the breakfast component. Um, those to me seem to be like their general kind of uh, competitors, um, per se. There are other ones, but those are the ones that kind of jump out at mine. So that was the second question. So that's what they do. Um, third question I always ask is, who who buys their stuff? Who who are their customers? Who are who are the people that they are trying to attract to their product? And when I look at Cheesecake Factory, it seems like three kind of groups of people want to they they they're going after. First group of people, families, very family oriented. The type of food is just stuff that kids just eat up. It's fast food, the desserts, the sugar, the the grease, everything. It's all kids love that stuff. They eat it up. And when you go there, you always see lots of families, lots of young kids, lots of big groups of families, bunch of families getting together, and they're they're always, you know, just go to the front door of the Cheesecake Factory, and that's what you're going to find there. Other people you're going to find there, too, who are attracted to the place are, it's kind of like single people. It's kind of, in a way, because, and I think it's more of the dessert side of it, it's kind of a good date place, place location. Take, a, take somebody on a date. Um, Cheesecake Factory is kind of that safe... Um, because there's so much choice in the menu that there's guaranteed there's going to be something that everybody's going to like there. So that's another people, a group of people who I think would be quite uh, frequent that place quite a bit. And the third place, I, the third group of people I think that would frequent it is is tourists. There's a lot of times um, the one I've been to. I've been to a yeah, I've been to a couple of cheesecake factories. I've been to one in Hawaii. And I've been, actually I've been to three. I've been to one in Vegas, I've been to one in Hawaii, and I've been in one in Honolulu, and I've been to one in Buffalo. And I've noticed the ones in Vegas and the one in Hawaii were just crazy, 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 crazy packed, crazy busy. And they are situated very much in very much touristy kind of places. So like the one in Vegas is in, I believe it's in Caesars Palace, and it's right on the strip. It's in the that uh, forum shop, so it's huge volume of traffic of go, people going there. The one in Honolulu, um, right near Waikiki Beach, again, another in a nice high traffic, high touristy kind of area. So tourists, I would suspect, would be uh, another core group of people that would want to come here. Um, question I always ask to is, okay, these are the people that are going to go to, the, these are the customers. Now, will those customers come back? 
Because ultimately, it's great. You want you know, it's all, you don't want this. You know, when you're looking at a company and a business, you want them to continuously sell their products. So you want to see um, continuous uh, turnover in terms of people uh, visiting the company, uh, visiting the business, and buying stuff. So with Cheesecake Factory, I thought. If you've been to one, the lineups are crazy. There's always lineup. You can like the one. Every, I think everyone I went to, I was waiting. We were waiting for like an hour to get in, and people will have no problem. They'll hang out there, uh, and they have a really incredible system. You know, the 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 glowing whatever puck or whatever the hell it is. Um, you can walk around anywhere, and you can get paged when your table is ready. And so people are willing. So they have that mechanism to deal with the high volume of people that come to the place. So clearly, people are willing to go back to it over and over again. So again, that's a good thing. So. Um, it has a very good loyalty, a loyal following. It seems to be a lot of brand loyalty, a lot of recognition of, of Cheesecake Factory. It's, it's kind of iconic in a sense uh, in terms of restaurant. So it seems like a really great business from what I've seen and from what I've read about it. Um, fourth question I ask, and this is now we're starting to get a number. Right now we've been talking about you know, just what the business is and everything like that. But now let's get into some numbers because ultimately we're making investment decisions here. So the first question, Next question I always ask myself is, are these guys making money? Is this company profitable? Is it generating sufficient revenues? Is it generating sufficient returns on the capital that it is being invested in? And so when I looked at Cheesecake Factory, if you go back the last three years, their returns on invested capital have come in between 17 and 24%, which is pretty amazing considering um, the restaurant industry as itself is a very low margin business. There's not a lot of profit you can crank out really efficiently with it. So the fact of the matter, and the fact of the matter is restaurant traffic and restaurant sales in the last while have been have not been really great. And restaurant stocks have been kind of in the down downdraft. And it's again, it's one of the reasons what drew me to this company, drew me to Cheesecake Factory, was the fact that stocks, these stocks seem to be quite out of favor. Uh, and a lot of it is because the, the industry is kind of in a downslope. But when I looked at Cheesecake Factory, this is a company that's doing pretty well. Um, you know, re- returns on invested capital between 2017 and 24%. Cost of capital coming in around 11%. So this company is making tangible wealth. It's making positive economic profit for the shareholders. So that's what I want to see. I definitely want to see that. So this is a company. So this makes me want to look, go even more deeper into this company. If this company was not being profitable right th- at this point, I would stop analyzing this company and I would just, that would be the end of it. I'd move on to the next one. So, so far, it's making profitable. It's profitable. People are buying this. Uh, it has a good loyal following. Has an interesting value proposition and a product line. What else can I ask about this company? Well, I can look at more in depth in terms of the financials, in terms of their balance sheet, the quality of the bit. Is is the company financially strong? So when I looked at their balance sheet, what jumped out right away was the fact that this company has no debt. So right away, you can know that the number the the, the financials, the financial strength of this company is going to be pretty strong. It's got very low intangible assets. So the quality of the assets within this business are really high and really strong. And what also piqued me, the fact that it has no debt, this is a type of company that maybe a private equity or a private buyer might be interested in buying and kind of lever up and kind of increase the shareholder value for it. So to me, this is kind of a company that would be in a target and the crosshairs of of a, of a private equity kind of acquisition-y kind of business looking to kind of lever up to a leverage buyout because that's what they love. They love to see these cash-rich, um, low to next to nothing debt because it gives them opportunities to lever the company up 
increase more debt into the company, lower the cost of capital, increase the value of the business. Um, free cash flows in the business, pretty solid. I looked at the liquidity, the current ratio. It's actually below one, which is usually a concern. Um, but then I looked at the free cash flows, and again, it's just generating strong free, free cash flow, which again is a good sign of a, of a long-term durable business. So, so far again, everything seems to be dis different. But the next question that I always have to ask, and we always have to ask ourselves is, what could screw this up? What are the risks uh, that Cheesecake Factory uh, and their business model could be facing? There's a few outlying risks out there. And one of them is the whole concept of malls. Um, Cheesecake Factory has made a conscious decision to locate, to put their restaurants strategically in malls. And... The big reason is to, you know, the foot traffic um, attracts people and gets people into malls. And, it, and if they're in the right malls, they can get a lot of people going by, the, going by their restaurants and attracting people to the restaurants. Challenges right now is we're seeing, um, and this is because of the whole online presence, the whole Amazon kind of thing out there, where people are now going less and less to malls. There's, we're seeing a sort of a hollowing out of of, of malls out there, specifically mid-tier, lower-tier malls. People are just, the foot traffic isn't there. And so a lot of people, and this is probably why the stock has been under pressure, is because people have been saying, hey, if, if malls are in trouble, if malls are falling, then chances are there's not going to be enough traffic for, for companies like, for restaurants and businesses like Cheesecake Factory, and they could be seeing their foot traffic go down, and ultimately that's going to impact their revenues and profitability and all that kind of stuff. So that's been one element to it. Second element too is the whole retail sales side of it. Again, this feeds into the mall aspect. Retail sales have been tracking down a little bit. And again, foot traffic, mall experience could potentially uh, impact, negatively impact Cheesecake Factory. So that's one side of it. Now the interesting thing to counterbalance that, what I kind of looked at was that, um, was that they, is the, is the malls that they actually are in. And they, they've made a conscious decision to, to put their restaurants in pretty much you know, like AAA, Class A real estate, Class A malls. A lot of the malls that they're in are catered to a more higher income, upper income kind of crowd. So these are places that'll have like a Nordstrom's or a Saks or um, you know a lot of boutique-y brand name, uh, luxury kind of level um stores which attract a bigger a, a, you know a specific type of group of people with higher incomes higher disposable incomes who would be more um motivated to invest i mean invest more to eat at a cheesecake factory so that's an element too and i noticed that and now when i think about it the one in vegas and then the one in hawaii they were in pretty upscale areas like an upscale kind of outdoor mall kind of environment so it, it seems to jive and so when I look at it, you know, I'm going, yeah, retail malls are going down, but maybe the malls that Cheesecake Factory are in and strategically they're putting themselves in um, might not, they may not feel the same effect as maybe if they were in a, in a class B kind of ball, mall or a class C kind of mall. So that's one element, another element that they're dealing with. So another risk is, is tourism. And again, Cheesecake Factory has been quite, their business, most of their restaurants are in the U.S. Um, and, you know, as somebody that's in here in Canada, we're seeing a lot of stuff going on in the States now, especially with the Mad King kind of and all these travel bans and walls going up and things like that. So a lot of people are worried and I, the initial uh, 
stats that have come out there is in terms of tourism, US, tourists going to the U.S., it's been falling since, since the Mad King has, has taken the stage. And so potentially that could have an impact um, on traffic again and a number of visitors to, to Cheesecake Factory. Again, because tourism seems to be, a lot of tourists I've noticed that frequent these places, and I was one of them, and I, it's, 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 it's an attraction for a lot of people. So, but if not all people are traveling to the U.S. and not tra- and are not traveling to these type of locations, it could be uh, a tough. It could be a negative potential impact. So there are risks with this company. It's doing great. It's making money, solid business, solid, But there are risks out there. So you have to kind of weigh: Are these really big risks, or are these the risks that the management can kind of deal with and plow through it? So that's another element that's kind of hanging was hanging on me. Now, the final question we got to ask ourselves is, okay, we've gone through everything, but at the end of the day, we're buying stocks here. So is the stock cheap? And that's a question you got to ask yourself. So you can have a really great, well-run business, but if the stock is really expensive, it may not be a great move or the time may not be right for you to kind of get into the stock. So when I looked at the valuations on Cheesecake Factory, uh, well, first of all, the stock has been pretty much going down. Um, since the start of the year, it was at one point at the start of the year, it was in the sixties and now it's been, it's down to like the mid to low forties. And that's really what, uh, piqued my interest in looking at it. Um, it's down almost on a year to year basis, it's down 12%. So this stock is kind of out of favor. It's been falling. When I looked at the valuations on the company, um, com- the valuations that I've seen put the stock at between 49 to $59. And at the time I was looking at the stock, it was at about $47. And it's actually fallen further, and I've actually bought more shares on it. Um, when I looked at the valuation compared to their competitors, they're actually cheaper relative to their other competitors. And when I look at the valuation, I go, okay, there seems to be some, there is some upside. It's not dirt cheap right now um, because it's a high-quality business, and you're going to pay money for an extra, you're going to pay a little premium for a high-quality business. So, but there is some potential there at least to get a 20% return out of it. So which is kind of what I, I look for when I, when I try to make investment decisions, but that's me. So when I factor all these fact in, uh, issues in, when I look at, you know what, this seems like a best of breed. It's one of the leading restaurant chains in, in America. It's got a loyal following. It's got a product line that people really like and gravitate and come in at good price points. It's a consistent product, um, solid financials. It's generating strong economic profit in a depressed market really in a, in a low in an industry that's in a low cycle and its stock appears at this point to be cheap so when i factored all these elements together it seemed to me like this seems like a good company that i'd want to be part of that i'd want to have in my portfolio and where the stock is right now i thought it was a good opportunity to jump in and the fact of the matter is the canadian dollar is cheaper i mean is, is more stronger i could actually get more share a bigger bang for the buck with buying the stock so that that's when I factor all these elements in, that's when I maybe decide to buy Cheesecake Factory. And so I did. And then I bought it at 47 and then the stock actually went down even further um, to 42 43 and I bought some more again uh, to lower my cost base. So my cost base on the stock is, I think, 44 44 and change um, for Cheesecake Factory. So that was my one decision that I made. My second decision was I decided to buy some stock in Costco. Costco is one of those companies that I've had on my buy list for since I started having buy lists. I've always wanted to own Costco, but I've never been able to want to buy Costco. I couldn't bring myself to buying it because I just, I just always thought the stock was pricey. 
And uh, I owned it at one point. I remember at one point I bought it at 100 bucks a share and it went up to 125 or 120 bucks a share and I sold it. So I made 20% profit, but it kept going up. And it's gone up as high as $180 recently. And now it actually, over a while, it's been pulling back down and it came down as low as in the 150 range. And that's kind of where I got my curiosity up. And I said, you know what? I wanna start taking a look at this stock again and seeing, you know, is the fundamentals of the business still the same as when I looked at it a few years ago? Um, if so, hey, and I'm gonna buy it if it's, this might be a really good opportunity. But before I got to that point, I had to ask myself these eight questions. So here we go again. Uh, and this is what I want you to get out of this, is just the, the iterative nature of investing, of making investment decisions. It's just asking the same questions over and over, answering the questions, and then coming up out of it with an opinion and a feeling and a vibe and say, you know what, I want to buy it, or you know what, I don't want to buy it. And the point of doing this is just giving you that framework, that structure for how you go about making investment decisions, because that's what's going to serve you. That's what separates great investors from the run of the mill. They're just not throwing darts and saying, oh, okay, I feel like buying Costco today. No, there's a logic here. There's a progression of, uh, of analysis that has to go through. And as you can see, it's not crazy. Like you don't have to write a thesis on this stuff to, uh, to, 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 to make an investment decision. It's just basic observations. And as you can see, um, I put a lot of math in here. It's just, I'm just looking at qualitative kind of things. I'm just looking at the business and seeing, okay, and throwing some math saying, hey, are they making money? Oh, they're making money? Great, I think I wanna be, be a part of it. So, boom, let's do Costco. Uh, so question one, what do they sell? Well, Costco at its purest level is a grocery store. They sell, they sell grocery and they sell mass merchandise stuff. Um, the difference, I guess the value proposition with Costco is price in the sense that they sell things, they just don't sell a single tube of toothpaste, they sell them in five packs. And the premise being, you buy it in bulk, on a per unit basis, things are much more cheaper, and you save money. And you get more value out of it. Um, the other side of it is, that's unique too, is you just can't go in and buy the stuff at Costco, you have to be a member. You have to pay them a membership fee every year, so that comes in between 50 and $100 per year to have the privilege of buying all this stuff at a lower price. Um, they also sell not just grocery, they sell all kinds of other merchandise and it's very unique merchandise. And again, it comes at different, at a lower price point They're They kind of invented the whole concept of, uh, of the warehouse instead of buying in, in, a, in, a, in a shopping center with all kinds of nice pot lights and paint and decorations. It's just a bare bones, low overhead, um, store. And from that, lower costs, they pass those cost savings onto the customer, customer buys more stuff, more volume, more sales. So that's their value proposition. Um, <clears throat> who do they compete with? Well, they compete against obviously other traditional grocery store chains like your Safeways in the US or Walmart, I mean Walmart, uh, your Targets, uh, up here in Canada, Loblaws, uh, Metro, um, those are your big players up here. And they're also competing against online uh, retailers Amazon being the big one there, Walmart also a bigger player on that side of it too. Uh, and the best buys of the world because they sell a lot of uh, consumer electronics. So who goes, who, who are their customers? Who shops at Costco? Well, if you've been to a Costco, you think like everybody on the planet shops at Costco. So who are their core customers? Their core customers are families, large families, because again, buying things at bulk, um, you know, families just go through, you know, if you have family and kids, you just fly through stuff, through 
staple kind of things really fast. So going to Costco and buying those five tubes of toothpaste or those gallon of ketchup, um, you save money and you don't have to keep going to the grocery store every week. You go every couple of weeks, you go every few weeks or a month uh, type thing. Um, it's that convenience factor. Um, other people who want to go to Costco, small businesses, again, it's a wholesaler kind of uh, prices. So a lot of times people, businesses will just go buy products that they need and, you know, sell them to their customers type thing. So that wholesale aspect of it. Then there's a whole group of people who go to Costco just for sport, um, who just love the thrill of finding things there that they thought, oh, they would never need, but thought, oh, this is really cool. I need to have it. And I don't know about you, but I'm that person. Um, to me, my sport is actually going to Costco and walking out of Costco without buying anything. To, to me, that people like that should get them. I did it actually a few weeks ago. But uh, there's people who are, who are looking for a deal. If you've gone to a Costco and you go through the front part of the entrance of the Costco, there's all these different gadgets and products and stuff. And you go, oh, that's really interesting. I never knew you can do that. I'm going to grab one of those. That impulse buy. And there's no coincidence why those things are where they are. Um, samples, you know, they give out tons of samples to get people to do that impulse buy. So there's a lot of people out there who go to Costco just purely for the sport, for the thrill, for the entertainment value of finding a deal. And the question is, will they go, do they just go and come back? Will they come back? Do they go there over and over and over again? Well, just go to the, just go to a, uh, <laughs> just go to a parking lot and you're going to see, yeah, they're going to do that. So no problem there. Do they make money? Well, returns on capital have been, in the last three years, have been between 22 and 23%. Their cost of capital is about 9 to 10%. So they're making 10% like margin. Their economic profit, they're making tangible uh, tangible wealth for their shareholders. And, and a lot of it, and it's interesting because those return on capital is really high. And I find that really interesting because groceries is a pretty low margin business, but these guys are generating much higher margins than, than other competitors. And a lot of it is not necessarily the material, what they're selling, it's the membership. And I really didn't know this until I found out about it was they make a lot of their revenues or their profits come from that margin that they can generate is a lot of it is really driven by their memberships. So they're really, those memberships that you pay the $50, you know, you pay every year, they sell a lot of those memberships and people pay them over and over. So it's almost like a guaranteed stream of income. People may not shop as much at a Costco or frequently, but once you pay the $50, that's, that's like guaranteed money, um, guaranteed cash flow for, for, for the business. Um, financials, their balance sheet is again, rock solid, low debt. They actually have more cash on their balance sheet. Uh, they have so much cash on their balance sheet. They could retire all their debt, long-term debt, if they wanted to, they have more cash than long-term debt, no intangible assets. So the quality of the assets and the quality of the financials of the company are really rock solid. Risks, there are risks and a lot of people have, uh, are worried and concerned that Costco has not, um, has not been very uh, aggressive in with respect to its online presence. They focus more on the stores, the bricks, than the, the, the bricks and mortar than the clicks. And a lot of people say they're worried uh, it potentially presents a risk because Amazon is out there and they're gunning for them. And the recent announcement with Amazon buying Whole Foods now, which gives them an instantaneous distribution channel and an instantaneously uh, physical presence in a lot of areas where a Costco would be, 
a lot of people are worried about this is a threat to Costco and it's going to take. And that's a part of the reason why the stock has been falling from the 180 to the 150 level is, is this Amazon threat that is, seems to be out there. Um, but the company doesn't seem worried about it. They are, you know what, they know, they acknowledge they have to have an online presence, but they're not, they, they believe their bread and butter is, is in the warehouses. And so they work hard to, to keep people in the warehouses, to get people into the warehouses. And again, look at the foot traffic. It's on a weekend. It's crazy. Um, so that's a big issue right now with, with, I think with investors and with analysts is the, the Amazon threat. And it's basically anything in retail is basically, well, how are they dealing with Amazon? Well, it remains to be seen, but um, as long as the company is cranking out this kind of performance, it's, they'll be fine in that sense. So again, when I looked at the, the final question is you say, okay, is the stock cheap? Again, the stock was in the 180 range at the start of the year, and now it's around 150. Um, and it's still not cheap from a valuation perspective. Um, it's trading at a forward PE of 26 and the median PE of companies in that space is like 14. And when you compare it with like a Costco with a Walmart, which is at an 18 PE and target, which is at a 13 PE and Amazon with, well, Amazon's like 200 bazillion, but it's a pricey stock. Um, it's not a cheap stock. Um, but I, from what I looked at it from a perspective, the fact it's come from 180 to 150, the company's profits performance has been pretty consistent. It's definitely one of the best of breed companies out there. It's a high quality, well-run, well-managed business. It has an incredibly loyal and passionate following of customers. And uh, they make tangible wealth for their, for their shareholders. And the fact that I thought from 180 to 150, again, strong Canadian dollar, I thought, you know what? It's a pricey stock, but I think there's at easily 20%, 20-30% gains that could be uh, returned on this on this stock. So I put I took all these elements together and I said, you know what? I think I'm gonna this is I think this is as good as a time to get in on the stock. So I went in and I bought it and my I, I opened up a position. I bought it at the 150 level. And again, if the stock were to fall a little bit more, I would be I wouldn't have any problem buying more stock at this price because um, I just think it's it's just one of those high quality businesses uh, that I think over a long period of time is just going to do some good things for you and do some good things for your portfolio. So I thought this was a really good time to get in on it. So I pulled the trigger and I bought some shares into uh, into into Costco because I, I think there is some long-term uh, um, benefit to owning it. So those are my decisions. It's quite a bit. I went through this a bit longer. Usually it's a little bit quicker when I talk about these decisions. I don't make as many investment decisions as I, at this level than that I've done in the, uh, in the past month. But I, again, I want to be upfront and I want to share this stuff with you. And just sort of, I hope you're starting to see kind of like the sort of the hamster kind of like running around saying, okay, this is how I need to think through when I'm evaluating a stock. And hopefully what you're really getting on it is, is that you don't have to have like a bazillion spreadsheets out there and calculating models and ratio. You just need to have a handful of ratios out there and a half, little, a few, some core metrics and a bit of an understanding about what the business sells, who buys it, and is there any threats to the business or the risks associated with the business. And then look, figure out, okay, is the stock cheap or is it expensive? Are they making money? If all these things come out good, then you buy it. That's what you do. You're buying businesses, you're buying people, ideas, and so what I do with this framework, these eight questions, is help people do that. And this is what I teach. I teach it in my everyday investing course, and at the end of the day, you can, people come out of it knowing how to confidently analyze, invest, and actually be profitable, uh, making solid investment decisions with 
this kind of framework. So if you have any questions, feel free to shout. You can find me on my website, sageinvestors.ca. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at sageinvestors. I'm always commenting, observing, and I'm tweeting in real time the decisions that I've made here. I, as I make them in real time, I tweet them out. Um, I'm also on Facebook. I have got my Facebook page up and running. You can look for me, Sage Investors. All my blog posts and everything are on there. Um, so feel free to jump aboard and follow and keep, uh, keep tabs with what I'm doing. And finally, if you are also interested, I also publish a newsletter once a week. Uh, I call it In The Loop, and where I talk about all um, what I'm, stuff that I'm reading uh, in, the, uh, in my investing uh, research and analysis and due diligence. So I share that with people. Um, so just sign up, just drop your email address, and you'll, uh, every Wednesday morning uh, before 7 a.m., you'll have an email in front of you. Um, that'll talk about what's going on in the market and give you a little bit of a, uh, kind of a, a dashboard kind of sense of what's going on in the markets. And, uh, hopefully you can take away with it and use it in how you are investing. So that's it for this episode of Stock Talk. Thank you for joining. Uh, feel free to, uh, jump on uh, iTunes. All my previous episodes of Stock Talk are all on iTunes and all on my website, sageinvestors.ca. And, uh, jump aboard and I'd be happy to be great. Jump aboard and listen away. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you again another time. Take care. Bye.